Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hey, and we're live. Welcome back to the Game Master's Journey live stream. This is live stream number three. So, yeah. <laughs> I uh, had a lot of fun last time um, for number live stream number two. Had quite a few people join me in the chat. So I hope that today as well, we will have lots of people uh, showing up in the chat and participating and giving me ideas of what to talk about. But if not, that's okay. I'll, I'll come up with stuff to talk about. <laughs> no worries there. But uh, yeah, I would definitely be happy to, to see some people show up today. I'm not sure though, because I kind of last minute had to change the day that I'm doing these. I used to do them the first Monday of every month. And uh, at least for the, the here and now, I'll be doing them the first Wednesday of every month from three to four Pacific time. And that's just because of a new job I got and new hours. So, you know, what are you going to do? You got you to gotta do what you got to do, right? So this is a live stream for Game Master's Journey, which if you're new to Starwalker Studios or you're new to me, I'm Lex Starwalker, by the way, uh, and you don't know what Game Master's Journey is, it's a podcast I produce. It's an RPG podcast for players and GMs, although we talk a lot about things from the GM side of the screen, how to be a better GM, GM tricks of the trade, and things like that. Uh, applicable to any RPG out there, but lately I've been talking a lot about D&D 5th edition and using that for my examples for discussions. So just earlier this week, episode 162 came out, which was an interview with Mike Schley about mapping for RPGs and art in RPGs and also his new Kickstarter, Schleiskates, which is a pretty exciting Kickstarter he's got going on. So go check out episode 162. You can listen to it here on my YouTube channel, or you can go to the website, starwalkerstudios.com, and get the podcast there. And also, for anyone new to this or, or new to me, uh, if you have any questions or anything, be sure to uh, check the description of this video. I have lots of links down there. Um, I've had people ask me on YouTube, you know, how they can get my podcast, Game Master's Journey, in an audio format so they don't have to watch it on YouTube. And uh, all my videos have links to my website, which is where you can go to subscribe to Game Master's Journey. You can get it on Google Play, iTunes. Um, you can use any podcast app to subscribe to it. I've got an RSS feed. So yeah. Um, it's all there. So waiting for uh, some people to show up on the live stream. Hopefully, hopefully some people will uh, today. So I'm not all by myself. But in the meantime, I, I do have some other things to talk about. Um, we are now producing every month bonus episodes of Game Master's Journey. So Game Master's Journey, for the most part, comes out every week. But now, in addition to that, once a month, I do an extra episode and that is thanks to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. And also this live stream <laughs> that you're watching right now is thanks to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. It's because of the support of the patrons that I can take the time to do more with the show and do more extra things for you like these live streams and more actual play games and even more episodes of the podcast. So if you would like to support Game Master's Journey and or Starwalker Studios, a great way to do so is to become a patron. I've got a Patreon page. You can find the link at starwalkerstudios.com or you can go to patreon.com slash starwalkerstudios and check out the Patreon. And uh, I appreciate the support of all the patrons. And again, it's because of their support that we have this live stream today and that we have extra episodes every month. And I would love to do more and, and go bigger. Uh, so with the further support of additional patrons like maybe you, 
uh, we can get there and do that. I'd love to do Game Master's Journey every day. That's that's a possibility. It's pretty pie in the sky, but uh, I would I would definitely do it if I could justify it. I'd be I'd be happy to do it. Also, um, I just recently published a D&D adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth, and you can find that at starwalkerseos.com. So that's another great way that you can support what I'm doing. Um, other than becoming a patron or in addition to that is you can check out my adventure and run it for your players. Or if you're a player, gift it to your DM and say, hey, maybe this is an adventure you might want to use someday. And yeah, I would love to hear from anyone who's played or run the adventure what you think of it. I'd love to hear what what people's experiences with it were. Well, I see now we have one person in the chat room. I wonder who's out there. Hello, chat room, Solamente person out there, uh, whoever you are. Uh, welcome to the live stream. Just rambling on here a bit at the at the beginning with some kind of housekeeping stuff while we wait for people to get here. Also, every, well, I, I say every Monday and we haven't played the last two weeks, but usually on Mondays, I live stream my D&D game. Right now I'm running the Hidden Shrine of Tomawakan, which is one of the adventures in the Tales from the Yawning Portal uh, D&D book that recently came out. And we play that on Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Um, but due to holidays and changes in my work schedule, uh, we actually haven't played for a couple weeks now. But next next Monday, um, we're, we're going to get back cracking at the uh, the hidden shrine of Tomawakan. So um, that's all the kind of stuff. So um, since I don't have anyone really shooting any questions at me uh, in the chat right now, I guess I'll talk about what, what I brought to, to talk about today, just in case uh, I didn't have any questions. And I thought I would talk a little bit about my next... Uh, RPG campaign, which is going to be a D&D campaign that I'm planning to run and that I'm preparing to run. So right now, as I just said, I'm, I'm running Hidden Shrine, which is a published adventure. Uh, but as I'm doing that in the background, I am preparing for the next campaign I want to run. And I get a lot of questions from listeners of the podcast about you know how do you plan for campaigns and how do you prepare adventures and stuff like that. It seems to be a topic that a lot of people are interested in. So I thought today I would talk a little bit about the campaign I'm preparing and kind of what I'm doing to prepare for it. And hold on just a second as I open a window. It is getting really hot in here. Hopefully all the uh, dogs in the neighborhood won't start barking as they tend to do. You know, actually opening the window did not help as it's hotter outside and it is in here. Whoops. Haha, <laughs> this is live and unedited, folks. Can you tell? Um, stand by as I grab a fan. Grabbing a fan. Don't worry, it's just here. This shouldn't take but a moment. Hopefully uh, it won't make too much noise, but it is getting hot in here. All right, hopefully that fan isn't, isn't too loud. If it's too loud, shout in the chat room and I'll just sweat. <laughs> but uh, I can't hear it in headphones, so hopefully that means you can't hear it, or at least not very well. So, so yeah, I'm, um, I'm running a published adventure right now. But I'm really wanting to do uh, my own thing. Uh, published adventures are fine. And there's a time and a place for them. Um, and <laughs> I found that I, I tend to get really excited about them in the beginning. Like when, when an adventure first comes out and I first read it. And if I like it, like for instance, Curse of Strahd or, or uh, The Hidden Trine of Tom Walken. I get really excited about it. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. This will be really fun to run. Um, but it seems like as I run a published adventure, uh, at some point, usually, uh, before I finish it, I start to get a little, I don't know if I want to say I get tired of it, but it starts to be a little bit of, of a drag. And, and I think the real reason is that it's, 
it's published. It's pre-written. It's, you know, I, the, the further I go, the more constrained I start to feel because published adventures just by their nature, it's a, uh, the nature of the beast, you know, necessary evil. They don't know who your players are. They don't know what their characters are. They don't know what choices they make through the campaign. So the longer you play through a published adventure, the more and more likely that you're going to, in one or more ways, kind of diverge from what the adventure is assuming is kind of the state of the game at, at your table. And the more you diverge from that, the more work it becomes to make that published adventure work. So I think that's part of it. And I think part of it also is, is this thing, and I think we all feel this way, where I tend to get much more excited about a cool idea that I have than I do about a cool idea that someone else has. So as I'm running an adventure, I'm having my own ideas. And some of them I can use in the adventure. And, and if I can, I do. But then some of them I, I can't. And, and as I have more and more of these ideas I'm really excited about, maybe more so than th this published adventure I'm running, I, I more and more start thinking, man, I, I kind of wish I was, I was running my own thing instead of doing this, this published adventure. So one idea I've had is to, to help cope with that is to spend time working on something of my own. So I've been actually, I've been running a lot of published stuff for the last few years and I've spent extra time that I have during that time, a lot of times doing world building. I've been building my own D&D setting called Primordia and so when I have free time and I don't need to prepare for my next game session and I, or I don't need to uh, study the adventure I'm running or, or do something else and I can do whatever and I want to do something RPG related, then I'll do world building stuff. And, and that's what I've been doing for two or three years now. And, you know, that, that works great. So as I'm, I'm building this world, more and more I want to run adventures in it. And, and I've run some, I've, I've run some short adventures in it. And, and actually the hidden shrine that I'm running right now, I'm running in Primordia. So I took that adventure and I put it in my world of Primordia. And so the players made, you know, Primordia characters and, and they're playing that adventure. Um, so I decided that, that I would start planning uh, a homebrewed campaign. And I've, I've actually had a few different ideas for homebrew campaigns that, that I've done work on in the last few years in Primordia. Um, and, and actually, I had two separate ideas that I'm thinking of that, that I actually fleshed out quite a bit. Um, I was considering publishing those, and I, I still may someday. Um, I'd like to run them at the very least. Um, but but then I, I decided to do the, the Trickster's Labyrinth instead because I wanted to do something shorter um, instead of this big, long, you know, huge campaign kind of thing for, for my first publication. So um, I had th those two ideas that, I, that I've worked on quite a bit. Um, and then I also have really been itching to do something West Marches style. And, and I'm going to very soon do an episode of Game Master's Journey all about the West Marches. I'm actually probably going to do more than one episode because there's a lot to unpack there and there's a lot to talk about. And it's a style of campaign that I'm really excited to run. So West Marches is a more sandbox style campaign and it's an exploration based campaign. Um, it can, it doesn't have to, but it can use kind of the hex crawling uh, type of play as, as players explore a wilderness and it's also a way to accommodate having a larger pool of players and running more than one group at a time. And also, if you have the time, it's a way to accommodate gaming more often. So this is something I'm, I'm really excited about and wanting to explore. So I had these kind of two campaign ideas that I've worked on that were more kind of uh, traditional story-driven campaigns. And then I started working on ideas for a West Marches style campaign 
which I'm calling East Marches because it's uh, east of Alondria and in, in what will probably be called the East Marches of Alondria. And um, so, so that's what I'm working on next is this East Marches campaign. However, as I've been working on it and developing it, I've already figured out a way to tie in one of those two uh, more story-driven campaign ideas I had that I'd fleshed out some into it. So the kind of the the setup for this campaign, and I'll probably talk about the structure of it more after I've done the West Marches episode. So we're kind of all on the same page and I don't want to spend time today talking about what West Marches is because we're going to do that on the podcast. Um, but if you want to know more and you can't wait, uh, check out Ben Robbins. That's R-O-B-B-I-N-S website. He's the guy that came up with this. Check out his blog. You can find his posts on, on West Marches. And that's the source. That's the place you want to go to learn about it because he's the guy that came up with this stuff. Um, other than that, there's a bunch of posers like me that will give you their their version of what they think West Marches is. But I always say go to the source. Primary research, right? <laughs> So check it out. Um, he's the guy that did uh, the games uh, Kingdom and Microscope. So if if he sounds familiar, that might be what you know him from. But anyway, yeah, I don't want to talk about that today. I want to talk more about just the campaign and what I'm doing to prepare for it. But just kind of just shortly, it's going to start out with a kind of a, a story element because one of the major drawbacks of a sandbox campaign is it can be difficult to get going. If you start a campaign, just pure sandbox, especially, I mean, it depends on your players and the characters they make, but it can be difficult for things to kind of get going because the, the players aren't sure what to do or they can't agree on what to do. And so, you know, you spend quite a bit of time at the beginning of the campaign doing a lot of nothing as the players try to decide what they're going to do, which isn't a great way to start a campaign, right? I, I like to think of adventures and campaigns like action movies, you know, like a James Bond movie, right? You know, we don't start a James Bond movie with James Bond um, having a philosophical conversation with someone, right? We start with an action sequence. And it may or may not have anything to do with the rest of the movie, but we start with an action sequence. So I like to do the same kind of thing in an RPG, especially the first session of a campaign. I don't want to start with an hour of boring crap and we're not actually playing. The players are talking about what they're going to do, right? So I think it's best to start even a sandbox campaign, start with something a little more story-driven, something... Um, that will give the players some direction to get them going. So this campaign is going to uh, bring the, the player characters together in a very specific way. And one thing that I'm doing a little differently with this campaign, um, something I've learned from quite a few of the campaigns I've run recently is I've learned that I do not give, or I tend to not give enough direction to my players as far as what I'm expecting as far as their characters, what kind of characters I want them to play, um, what I'm planning as far as the campaign and kind of what kind of uh, characters and backstories would be appropriate and would work really well in that campaign versus what not so much or what wouldn't work at all. And I know that I'm failing at this because almost every campaign I run, I'll have at least one character that, I feel like it doesn't really fit the campaign. And sometimes I'll try to like work this out with a player and maybe we make some changes or whatever. Sometimes I'm just like, uh, screw it, <laughs> whatever, you know? Um, but almost always there's at least one character that I'm just like, ah, I, this character doesn't really fit. I wish before the player had made this character, I told them X, Y, and Z. So this wouldn't have happened and they could have made a, a character that fits the campaign better. Because the last thing I want to do as a DM is when a player comes with a character they've made to say, you can't play that character. Or, well, you can play the character, but you got to change this. You can't be that race, or you can't be that social class, or you can't have that background, or, oh, I don't want you using that spell, or, or things like that, right? You know, by the time a player has made a character, like they've already probably got some idea or concept in their head 
of what this character is going to be or what they want it to be. And the last thing I want to do is rain on their parade and say no to any of the things that they've come up with that they think are cool, right? Like I want them to be excited to play their character. So in an effort to address this, I have decided to do something uh, different that, that I've never done before, at least not to this degree. And that's, I'm actually going to come up with a player's guide for the campaign. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I'm putting in my player's guide and and why I'm I'm doing it the way I'm doing it and why I'm putting in the things I'm putting in. So this um, idea kind of came from a few different places. First of all, I was telling you about West Marches. I was telling you about Ben Robbins. And um, I watched a discussion on West Marches campaign over on the Dawn Forge cast uh, YouTube channel. And the DM of that campaign really urged giving the players a handout that kind of uh, describes what a West Marches campaign is, what to expect from it, how it's different from a normal campaign, and, and just the information they need to have before they start thinking about making a character. So I thought that was a great idea. Uh, another side of this is that I am running this in, in my own setting, and unlike the Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance or something like that, you can't go somewhere and read all about Primordia like because it's my setting. So the players aren't going to know a whole lot about the setting. So I thought it would be good to give them the information that they would have and the information that they might need about the setting as, as far as what it's like. And then the other part of this was the uh, adventure paths that Paizo puts out for Pathfinder. Um, they have these great uh, supplements for them. And if I remember right, I think they're free PDFs. Um, but they have like a player's guide for each of the adventure paths. And the player's guide gives the players kind of the background information they need about what this campaign is and what your, your characters would know, what you would know. And another thing that they do that I think is really cool is they'll go through all of the classes in the game and they'll talk about, would this be a good class to play in this campaign? Why or why not? And and um, if you are going to play this class in the campaign, you know maybe here are some uh, abilities or spells that will be especially useful, or here are some things you want to think about if you're going to play this class in this campaign. So I thought those were all really cool ideas, and I kind of wanted to do all of those. So as I started thinking about that, I was like, I, I basically going to make my own player's guide for Primordia for this campaign specifically. So. So that's what I started doing. And I've been having a lot of fun with it. And to simplify this and to make it easy on the players, I've laid it out um, basically the same way that the player's handbook is, which is to say the chapters are kind of in the same order. So just like in the player's handbook, you start with character creation and races, classes, backgrounds, equipment, etc. That's how I laid this out so you know, presumably a player who's who's familiar with the player's handbook is going to be able to find what they they need to find in here fairly easily. So I start out with uh, character creation, and I talk about um, I, I kind of just go through the process of building a character and give any differences for Primordia. So so basically, this is saying. Assume the player's handbook is true unless this document says that otherwise. And here I'm giving you the exceptions to what's in the player's handbook. So for example, uh, available races to play, I don't have gnomes in Primordia and I don't have stout halflings in Primordia. So all the halflings of Primordia are lightfoot halflings. So I, I spell that out. However, I, I took those races away but there are additional races that are available to play in Primordia that aren't available in the player's handbook. And those are the Azamar, the Genasi, and the Wind Elves, which is an elf uh, subrace. So then I, I talk about um, you know, the character creation, how I want them to make their, their characters, 
because when it comes to ability scores, there's different ways you can do it. You, you can roll, you can do point by, or you can do the stat array. So I'm choosing to allow players to either do the point by or the stat array, which are really the same. If you compare the stat array to the point by, you know, if you use 27 points and you built the stat array, like it, it works out perfectly. So, you know, you can just take the stat array or if you want to customize more, you can use the point by, but the characters will be equal whichever way you do it. Um, hit points. Uh, I explain that uh, the way I do hit points is I assume that you're taking the average and you get max at first level. If at any time you want to roll, you can do that, but you have to do it in front of me and you have to live with what you roll. And uh, go into alignment. And, and I just say for this particular campaign, for reasons that, that will be made evident as we play the campaign, um, only good aligned characters are allowed, which is a stipulation. If I've ever done that, it's been a long time. I usually say no evil characters, but I allow neutral. Um, but this campaign, I'm saying you, you got to be good. You got to be some flavor of good for this campaign. Uh, I'm, I'm allowing feats. So, so yeah, that, that section just kind of goes through character creation and briefly talks about um, anything I'm doing differently than what's presented in the player's handbook. So the player knows when they make their character kind of mechanically how it works, which for the most part, it, it's by the book. I do uh, spell out for equipment that you get your equipment from your class and your background. I don't do the thing where you roll for starting gold. Um, and then... This is something kind of interesting that uh, we'll, we'll see how this works. I have a discussion about forming a party. Okay, so without letting too much, too many cats out of the bag, or however you'd say it, without giving too many spoilers about the campaign, because uh, anybody who's going to play in it, I don't want to spoil it for them because I haven't started running it yet. But the, let me see, the basic setup here is this is going to be a group of first level characters who are contacted by someone from the Guild of Adventurers and brought together to form an adventuring team to do a very specific thing. And, and I was, I think I got derailed, but I was talking earlier about how I'm starting out the campaign with kind of a, a little bit of a story arc to get it going. And then I don't think I ever finished that thought. So it starts with a story arc to get going. And then it opens up into East Marches, you know, sandbox play. And then uh, as we get towards higher levels, there's going to be more story elements uh, coming in again. But the, the sandbox element is always going to be there because there's always going to be things that they can go off and explore. Um, it'll be a lot like, I think, uh, a lot of RPG video games or MMOs where you have your, your main story quests and you can follow that and advance that or you have all these other side quests around that you can do various things so that's how this will be like that there'll be uh, a main story quest there'll probably be some side quests like various npcs might might ask you to do a favor or whatever and then in addition to all of that you can just go out and explore um locations and, and stuff like that so you'll have a lot of choices during the campaign in any given game session what you want to do that night so um, I, because of this, I thought that some thought should be given to forming a party. And I went back and forth about this. And this is something, it's funny, I, I struggle with this with some games and not the other. Like when I ran Numenera, I never worried about who's going to play what. I was never like, guys, you should really try to have a glaive, a nano, and a jack. Like I was like, who cares? You know, just play whatever you want to play. And I want to be like that in D&D. &D. Like I want to, when, when people come to play in one of my games and they're like, what can I play? I want to be like, here's your options of what to play. Play whatever you want. Don't worry about what the other people are playing. Just make the character you want to play and play that. But unfortunately, that doesn't always work because sometimes in D&D, &D there, there are certain things you need. And back in the old days, we used to think of this in terms of uh, the character classes, uh, the basic classes in, in the game. And now the, the game is so uh, complicated. It's, it's become more complex. We now have more classes than we have roles. But it used to be, you know, you had your magic user, you had your cleric, you had your fighter, 
and you had your thief. And those were kind of the four roles in the game. That's kind of what you needed. You needed the cleric to heal people and um, cure diseases and stuff like that. You needed a magic user to be able to uh, use magic, not only just like fighting things, but also, you know, there's a lot of things you can do that a wizard can do with magic, like comprehend different languages or um, find hidden things and, and just um, teleport the group somewhere. You know, there's a lot of utility stuff you can do with magic. And then you needed someone to fight and, and someone who could, you know, take some damage and, and not die. And then you needed, you know, the thief. You needed someone who could um, open the locked chests and open the locked doors and find the traps and avoid them and, and stuff like that. But as the game's grown, we now have more than four classes and um, it, it's become more complex. And as I was thinking about it and this, you know, some people may not agree with this. This is just my opinion. But I was, as I was thinking about preparing for this particular campaign and I was thinking about the roles because the, the reason I want to do this is the the uh, in-world, in-story setup of this is each of the player characters are approached by someone in the guild who says, I want you to join the guild and I want you to join this specific team to do this specific job. It's a very kind of like an Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. Like the idea is each of these characters are maybe a specialist or, or you know, they're, they're good at something that would make them uh, a good candidate to, to be an adventurer, but they're not actually an adventurer yet. Or if they are, they're not a member of the guild yet and they're not a member of a team of adventurers yet. And um, I don't want to go into why this is because that would give away some story stuff, but, but just the basic setup is a, there's basically a, an NPC in the guild, we'll call that NPC the sponsor, who is putting together a group. And they're putting together a group of people who are not members of the guild, but, but could be and maybe should be. And so the idea is that each of the player characters are approached by this NPC and said, hey, I'm putting together a group to do a job. Do you want to do it? And presumably they, they all say yes, because that's kind of the launching point of the campaign. And because of that, I think it makes sense, just like Ocean's Eleven or like the show Leverage, right? That this group, each person in the group is going to have a role that they fill. And the... NPC doing the recruiting is going to choose characters to fill those roles, right? So if we're talking about, you know, uh, a heist or something, you know, you, you need your, your hacker and you need your grifter and you need your tough and, and all those different roles, right? And you find someone who's a really good grifter, you know, we get that person. Who's a really good hacker? We get that person, right? So it's the same kind of thing with this. So it wouldn't make sense, for instance, to have a party where everybody's a rogue or everybody's a cleric, you know, I mean, maybe it would, depending how they built their characters. But what would make more sense is, is that certain roles are, are covered. But as I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking of it from kind of a story perspective, like how would a character in the world look at this? You know, I find myself wondering, would those roles really be, you know, tank <laughs> healing, damage dealing, you know, Stuff like that, like like we think of in gaming, like we think of the roles in in D anD D. Um, I can't remember the. They came up with, I think it was in fourth edition. They came up with their own terms for the MMO terms because they didn't want to call it tank heals and DPS, so they came up with their own dumb terms. But <laughs> whatever, um, you know, we that's not necessarily how people in the world would think about it. So I started thinking about. It. I'm like, what really defines those roles? What really when you take a group of player characters and you put them together, what determines whether or not they really have what they need to succeed? Is it the classes that they choose? In earlier editions, probably. But in fifth edition, not really. I mean, that's not specifically it. Um, you know, the obvious thing, when you think of the roles of the game, the obvious one that always comes up, at least for me, is healing. Because that's the one that you often see no one in the group Fill that role. And something I've come to realize recently is in D&D, &D, you don't so much need a quote healer to heal hit points. 
Um, you, you can take a short rest and heal hit points. You can take a long rest and heal hit points. You can get healing potions. Like there are lots of ways to get hit points. You don't need a character in the party who that's their job is to give people hit points. Like you really don't need it. There's ways you can get around not having that. You don't really even need a quote healer to raise characters from the dead because, well, you don't really need to have that. You could just, if you die, you're dead and you make a new character. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's how a lot of people play D&D. You don't have to have someone who can raise characters from the dead, right? So I started thinking about it and I'm like, really what you need the healer for in 5th in edition, I think, is you need someone who can cast lesser restoration and greater restoration or do something equivalent. Uh, more specifically, you need someone who can remove conditions from player characters. Like if you get the condition diseased or poisoned or whatever, you get some, some horrible condition on your character um, that's maybe going to kill you or, or worse, you need some way to get rid of that. And a cleric is a great option for that. A bard that chooses the right spells that they know is a great option for that. Um, so thinking about that, I was like, well, I'm not really worried about that because if they actually make a group of characters and no one can cast the restoration spells, you know, that, that could be taken care of with a magic item. Right, they could have some kind of magic item that that can do that. For instance, uh, my group right now in Hidden Shrine, they didn't really, at least at the beginning, they have a cleric now. But at the beginning, they didn't have a quote healer, and I knew that there were going to be some um, fairly powerful poisons and uh, diseases. I think that that they would have to deal with, and so I was a little concerned, especially for the first couple sessions. Uh, there were some poisons that if they fell to the poison and they didn't have some way to get rid of poison, like that'd kind of be the end of that character. And I wanted them to at least have an option. And then I realized that uh, Kyotam's ointment removes poison. So, so there you go. So I just uh, made sure one of them had Kyotam's ointment and it was like, not a problem. They didn't need to have a cleric to cast lesser restoration or whatever. So, so that's not really it. Like even the healer thing, um, you can get around it. You don't really have to have it. So I found myself wondering, are there really roles in the game? Are there really things that, that you got to have or not? And I think there are, but I think in fifth edition, I don't think it's so much about your class or at least when it comes to creating a party, when it comes to players creating characters and thinking about, do we have our bases covered? I don't think that so much need to worry about class or is someone a healer or is someone a tank or any of that crap? I don't think they, they need to worry about so much like what spells do I have access to? Because all of those things can be covered by magical abilities you can get in the game, whether they're from spells that you can get or magic items or, or whatever. You know, if you need a, the ability of a certain spell, the DM has a million ways he can get that ability to you. It's, it's not difficult. Really what the limiting factor is, is the skills. That's what it comes down to is does someone have the arcana skill? <laughs> does someone have the diplomacy skill and a, and a decent bonus with it, right? Like that's what really in my mind determines the roles and whether or not you have your bases covered. And it's kind of funny how I came to this uh, conclusion because I have in my player's guide I'm working on I have a discussion of for forming a party and the different roles that should be in the party. And I started out thinking that I was going to recommend different classes to the different roles. But as I fleshed out the roles, I realized these are really skills. <laughs> They've got nothing to do with classes. And this is very specific to Primordia and specific to this campaign. But here are, here are the roles that I came up with that I think are going to be important in the party. So one role is healing, and um, that role uh, could be tied to the medicine skill. Now, this is something, even though I just talked about how the DM doesn't really need to worry about it, because if they don't have, for instance, the lesser restoration spell and you need them to have it, you can get it to them through a magic item or something like that. Um, even so, I put this as a role in here because I think the sponsor from the guild would would want someone that that has healing ability. Like, I don't think they would put together a team 
and not have someone in there that has some healing ability. So I do think it's a role that the players should think about, at least for this campaign. So I talked about um, how, you know, the, a big part of this is being able to remove uh, conditions brought about by poisons, diseases, curses, things like that. And, you know, there are different ways to do it. For instance, in addition to the restoration spells, the paladin can remove disease using lay on hands. So, so there's some different ways that, that you can do that. And I also discussed, you know, if when the time comes, if you want within the party to have the ability to bring characters back from the dead, then you, you want to have a character that could actually do that. So the next role is survival. And this is going to be a really important one in Primordia in general and in this campaign specifically. And survival is tied directly to the survival skill and to a lesser degree, the nature skill. So the characters are going to be traveling through wilderness. They're going to be um, living off the land a lot. They're, they're going to have to be able to provide for themselves. They're going to have to be able to navigate through wilderness and not get lost. So the survival skill is really important. And I think definitely the players want at least one character in the group who has the survival skill and having a character like a ranger specifically would, would be even better, but um, you know, having a ranger or a druid, or I believe the outcast background gets survival skill um, and, or just anybody that has the survival skill will be very useful. Another role is stealth. Now this role is a little different. A lot of the roles I'm kind of like, you really need one person in the group that's really good at this. If you have more than one, that's that's awesome. But at most, you need one. Stealth, on the other hand, is a role that in Primordia, just in general, and, and especially in this campaign, is something I think every character really should fulfill that role. Um, if every character can't be proficient in stealth, I think at the very least, we should not see any characters who are wearing heavy armor or for some other reason, they have disadvantage on stealth. I, I don't see Primordia being a place, especially when you're adventuring in the wilds where people wear heavy armor. That you know There are so many things out there that are way beyond your means to deal with. So being able to be sneaky and avoid notice is, is very important. And um, having awesome plate armor is not going to be worth uh, losing the ability to be able to be sneaky. Another role is Arcana. And one of the main purposes of my Guild of Adventurers is to discover new magics or old magics that have been forgotten about. And also to find and seal rifts to other planes. And uh, these things require uh, proficiency in the Arcana skill. So we got to have um, someone in the party that can do that. And I, I talk about in here that the, the ideal character for this is a wizard. Um, wizards are just built for this kind of thing. Um, a, a possible other possibilities would be um, a bard or a sorcerer um, or a character with the sage background, which actually I don't have that in here. Let me add that. Or a character with the sage and, and I, I point out here that I don't really think that warlocks are going to have the arcane knowledge and aptitude to really perform this role well. Yeah, they can throw some spells, but they don't really have the understanding of magic that a wizard does or even that a bard or a sorcerer or a sage does. They, they, just, they just don't. Next role is diplomacy. Got to be able to talk to people, right? And, and again, you know, like most of these... Not necessarily everybody in the party has to be good at this, but somebody should be. And uh, this will use the persuasion skill and or possibly the intimidation skill, as well as insight and possibly deception. Kind of de depending on what kind of face your party face is going to be. But those are the skills tied to that role. Um, another role is perception. Now, this is one like stealth where it's kind of like you definitely need someone good at perception but the more the merrier, you know, if everybody's good at perception, that, that'd probably be great. And that's perception skill, obviously. And then finally, we have the fighting role, which kind of everybody fulfills that role to some degree or another. And a possible skill tied with that is athletics. 
Um, athletics doesn't come into play a lot, but there are times where not having anyone in the party who's athletic can hold you back, whether that's because you have to swim somewhere or you have to climb something or whatever. And the last role I have in here is religion, which is the religion skill. Um, the gods are going to be very important part of this campaign. So it would be good for the party to have someone that, that knows about the gods and can decipher religious things and, and stuff like that. So that's all, you know, talking about character creation. Then I have a section on races. And this is, again, just saying, assume everything's true in the player's handbook. Any changes to that are here. Um, so I have a little bit about each race and kind of how they fit into Primordia and how they, they may differ than uh, races in other worlds. For instance, uh, the elves of Primordia uh, tend to be a little taller than the elves in, in other worlds. So I give a new uh, height and weight table for, for the various elves of Primordia, which are the high elves, wood elves, night elves, and wind elves. And just a discussion about the various races and, and how they're different from what's in the player's handbook if they are and just kind of what they're like in Primordia. For instance, my night elves, uh, which are the dark elves from the player's handbook, um, do, or, or I should say, are not all subterranean uh, dwellers in Primordia. So unlike, say, the Forgotten Realms, all the night elves of Primordia have not been driven underground. They still have above ground cities. However, uh, even the night elves that are above ground tend to be more active at night. Um, they tend to be nocturnal, which is why they're called night elves. Um, so there's kind of mechanically, there's kind of two different kinds of night elves in Primordia. You can be the standard night elf uh, as is presented in the player's handbook, which is a night elf where you grew up in the Underdark. Or you can be a night elf from the surface and the mechanical changes there are you give up the superior dark vision that dark elves get, um, but you also don't have the sunlight sensitivity that dark elves have. So, you know, there's good and bad. Uh, wind elves are winged elves. And yeah, so, so I just go through all the different races and I try to talk about kind of the culture of the race and what they're like. And specifically, I talk about what is their place in Alondria because this campaign starts in Alondria. So I talk about, okay, if you're going to play a dwarf, um, you have been living in Alondria for the last few years since the, uh, the retreat and the breaking of the world uh, began. And um, you've basically been in Alondria since that time for whatever reason. You probably, wh wherever your homeland is, you probably don't know the state of it if, it, if it's still around or not, although maybe you do, and that's something I'd work out with a player. Um, things like that, you know. So depending on the type of character they play, you know, they, everybody's starting out in Alondria. So, so if they're playing specifically a dwarf or an elf, which are kind of the non-human races of, of Primordia, um, then you know, I need to talk about, well, how are you here? How are you living in a human city? Um, the, the halflings are also obviously not a human race, but halflings, at least in Primordia, they don't so much build their own cities or settlements. They live with the other races. And so it's, you know, it's, there, there are plenty of halflings living in Alondria and, and were before uh, the, the time of the rifts and the retreat and the beginning of the breaking of the world and, and all that good stuff. The, the halflings have, have, been living in Alondria all along. And then pretty much, other than dwarf, elf, and halfling, all the other races in Primordia are half human, half something else. So this is a bit of a change from, from how some of the races are presented in the uh, player's handbook. But, you know, we've got dwarf, elf, halfling. Those are non-human races. And we have human. Then we have the Azimar, which are half human, half celestial. We have the Dragonborn, which are half-human, half-dragon. We have the Genasi, which are half-human, half-elemental. We have the half-elf, which is half-elf, half-human. Half-orc, which is half-orc, half-human. And finally, the Tiefling, which is half-fiend, half-human. 
So I've changed the Tiefling, Genasi, Asmar, and Dragonborn all so that they are half humans. So the Dragonborn, I, I did change mechanically a bit to represent that they're half dragons and not like dragon bastards or whatever the Dragonborn are. Um, so this, this I need to play test. But basically what I did is um, they have uh, dragon senses. So they have dark vision out to 60 feet and blind sight out to 10 feet. And then the the drawback that they have, and this is in addition to what's in, they have all the stuff that Dragonborn have in the book. This is in, in addition. Um, the drawback is they, they have a quality I've called abnormal shape, which is they're not really humanoid in shape. And, and their shape and their proportions are different enough from the other humanoid races that you are not, if you're playing a Dragonborn, you are not ever <laughs> going to find armor that fits you because no one makes armor for dragonborn, right? Like, like armor is made for elves or dwarves or halflings or something like that. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're a human and you find armor made for an elf, you can take it to an armor Smith and they can make it fit you maybe, you know, but uh, not if you're a dragonborn, it's like, you have to have armor crafted specifically for you. So that's something I really want to uh, play test um, and a lot of it's going to be uh, kind of a social thing. You know, people are going to be afraid of Dragonborn even more than they would be than of a like a half-orc or something like that or even a tiefling um, because they're big and they're very obviously not human. Where, you know, if you see a half-orc from across the street or a tiefling from across the street, you may or may not realize that they're not totally human. But a Dragonborn, you you totally would. So part of the drawback is is just going to be a, a role-playing social thing and then part of it's going to be you're just never going to find magic armor. You're going to have to either make it yourself or have someone make it for you. Um, so I don't know if that will be enough of a balance for giving them dark, dark vision and blind sight 10 feet. Playtesting is needed. We will see. All right. And then, yeah, you know, the Genasi and Tieflings as well are, are half human now in, in the Asmar. So the next chapter is classes. And this one still needs some work. Uh, most of the stuff I've talked to about so far is pretty much done, but the classes I, I need to uh, talk about and, and I want to do like what Paizo does where each class I want to talk about, you know, whether or not this class is a good fit for this campaign. Like right now I can say that the Druid and well, let me change what I was going to say. The Ranger is a particularly well-suited character for this campaign as is the, um, I'd say the wizard is a, is a super good um, class for this campaign. Um, probably those are the two, the two best. Um, Bard, Bard is pretty good. Um, Druid, Druid would be pretty good. Um, cleric, Cleric would be really good, actually. Um, yeah, so, so I got to kind of go through these and talk about, you know, oh, a monk really won't work very well in this campaign. And you can play a monk, but if you do, you know, it may not be very satisfying kind of thing. Or, oh, you know, rangers are going to be awesome in this campaign. And if you ever wanted to play the ranger where he saves a day every day because he can survive in the wilderness, and this is the campaign for you. You know, because there's going to be a lot of wilderness exploration. You know, I know a lot of us, we play rangers and then we never get to be in the woods. We're always in um, dungeons and stuff and we don't get to use our cool stuff. So, so that kind of discussion for all the classes. And then I, I also note here that the cleric and the druid and the paladin, uh, players of those classes will get to begin play at first level as a member of a mystery cult for one of the gods, which is pretty cool. So, yeah. Chapter three classes needs work. Chapter four backgrounds. I go. I went through all the backgrounds in the uh, player's handbook and in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide and thought about, will this work in this campaign? And I'm very happy that there's only a few of them from the SCAG that I decided just aren't going to work. All right. I take it back. There's some in the player's handbook as well. So I basically said the charlatan and the criminal backgrounds are not going to work in this campaign because this is going to be a, a heroic campaign. Um, I believe I, the way I put it in here is I want characters for this campaign that are the kind of people 
that would run into a build, burning building to save someone's kid, right? Those are the kind of characters I want for this campaign. Again, about being more specific to the players about what exactly I want so the characters really fit. Um, and, and you know, that's not usually, a, you know, I know some GMs are always like, all their campaigns are like that. I'm not usually like that, but this campaign, I'm like, I want heroic characters for reasons that will become obvious as time goes on. So charlatan and criminal won't work. Um, the possible exception to that is if a player wanted to do a redemption arc. So they wanted to start with a character that's maybe more selfish or whatever, but over the course of the campaign, they find their heart and they find goodness and, and they're redeemed and they become a, a, a hero. Um, that could be cool. And I would consider that, but it would have to be, that arc would have to happen pretty early in the campaign. Like, only a few sessions is your character going to be this criminal or the charlatan. And then, you know, fairly soon they're going to see the error of their ways and, and not be like that anymore. Cause again, the, you know, there's going to come a point fairly early in the campaign where it's like, you guys all need to be heroic at this point, if not before. So, you know, charlatan or criminal could work with the redemption art kind of thing, possibly with the right character. Um, and then one from the skag that just won't work is the Uthgar tribe member. Um, most of the skag ones I, I was able to make work. Some of them I changed a little bit to fit Primordia. Some of them I just renamed to fit Primordia. Um, for instance, the Water Davian noble is now an Elandrian noble, but I think other than that, I pretty much left it the same. Um, but the Uthgar tribe member just doesn't work. Not that there might not be barbarians, but I just don't see them being relevant to the story. And, and part of the point of this player's guide is to help players make a character that's relevant to the story because it's a drag to make a character and your background or whatever just never comes into play because it's not relevant. So better to, to say, here, here's how you can make a character who's relevant. So I've also been working on some new uh, backgrounds um, one is the alchemist, uh, which I'm working on. Another is a cartographer. Um, another is adventurer, which this could be a background I, I see more than one player character taking. Um, it's kind of a perfect background for, for an adventurer in the guild. The adventurer background. Uh, let's see, adventurer, alchemist, cartographer, and rift hunter is the other background I've been working on. And, uh, I'd like to, to come up with some more original backgrounds. So if you have any ideas of good backgrounds for Primordia that would fit the world really well, that aren't covered by the backgrounds in the PHB or the Skag, let me know. So yeah, I've, I've got an alchemist, cartographer, rift hunter, and adventurer. Next, I'm, I'm going to have a short chapter on equipment. And that is basically just going to have um, the, the quartermaster of the guild has some magic items that will be available for purchase, like potions of healing, Kyotum's ointment, um, maybe some like first level spell scrolls, stuff like that. So I have a list of uh, magic items that, that are available from the Guild Quartermaster and Alondria. Won't be terribly uh, relevant at the very beginning, but once the PCs adventure for a while and gain some treasure, you know, that's something that they could do. Um, and then any equipment that I have that's, that's different or in addition to what's in the player's handbook. Um, for instance, uh, I have uh, something different I'm doing with my Dwarven armor is uh, in Primordia, Dwarven made armor is heavier um, because Dwarves have, have a trait where the weight of their armor doesn't affect their speed. So Dwarves don't care how heavy their armor is. Um, so when Dwarves make armor, they make it heavier and stronger so it weighs half again as much as normal armor would um, but it has one better armor class so for instance a dwarven plate uh, would give you armor class 19 but it would weigh half again what regular plate wears and also really only dwarves can can wear it they're the only ones that are proficient in dwarven armor um, theoretically a a dwarf well, no, I was going to say theoretically a dwarf could make dwarven armor for a human or something, but I still don't think they'd be proficient in it because it'd be so heavy. So so they'd have problems with it. So it's really a dwarf-only thing. And in, in a similar vein, I have the elven longsword, 
which is a long sword made by elves in, in their traditional way. And the elven long sword uh, is a finesse weapon. So it has the finesse property and it, um, I believe, is half the weight of a regular longsword. Um, and it also costs twice as much as a regular longsword. And only elves um, can, can uh, begin play with one. And I'm thinking of doing something similar with the dwarven armor where, I mean, any, any non-elf could use an elven longsword but it's only considered a finesse weapon for elves. Like they're the only ones that are proficient with it to the degree that they can use it as a finesse weapon. So yeah, that's kind of it as far as like special equipment right now, at least, at least I've come up with so far. And then chapter six is going to be all about the gods of Primordia. And I'm going to have a little bit about each God here. And the goal here is to really focus on giving information that will help a player who wants to play a character that follows that God to tell them what they need to know about the God to play a character that follows them or is a cleric of that God and to hopefully make the God seem interesting and, and help players find one uh, that they're excited about that they, that they want to have as a patron deity. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to focus on things like, like traditions that followers of that God observe um, rituals that they perform their holy days offerings they might make, taboos they might um, observe, things like that, like like really RP stuff. Like if I'm playing someone who's all about this God, like like what are the things I would do? What would those look like kind of stuff? And then chapter seven, I'm going to have some new spells. Um, right now, I, I only, I haven't actually written any of them out yet, but I've only got a few that I'm thinking of right now. And they're basically spells that are um, tied to the rifts uh, spells to locate rifts and stabilize rifts and seal rifts and stuff like that. Um, but I might come up with some some other stuff too. And in chapter eight, magic items. Because um, why not? While I'm at it, I might as well throw some magic items in here. And there are a few magic items I've already made um, for Primordia, and and I'll I'll put those in there. And patrons of a certain level, I don't remember which tier. Uh, get access to my Primordia design diaries. So um, you can see those those items in there already. Um, but yeah, I, I might come up with some some other ones. Maybe maybe some items that the Quartermaster has that players could buy that uh, are new, unique items. So that's all the player's guide. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing this because for one thing, I plan to do um, more than one campaign. You know, I see this player's guide being useful for like all of my campaigns going forward. So I'm willing to put more work into it than, than I normally would for a player handout because I'm going to use it time and time again. Um, but I think it will be really useful for players to help them make characters. You know, it can be hard to make a character for a DM's homebrew world if you've never played in it before because you don't really know what to expect. You know, if you want to know about the Forgotten Realms, there's tons of information out there. You can find out all about it. But Primordia, not so much. So um, I, I want to make it a resource for players. And the idea is that, you know, I don't expect the player to sit down and read this thing cover to cover. You know, I expect them to read the parts that are relevant to their character and to read the parts that are interesting to them. So, you know, once you you're thinking about a class, go check out what I say about that class in the book. When you're thinking about a race, go check out what I say about that race in the book, right? Or if you want to know what the other races are like, you can read about those, right? But you don't necessarily have to read everything. You could just kind of make your character with the player's handbook and kind of cross index with, with my player's guide and make sure, oh, is this background any different in Primordia? Is this class any different? That kind of thing. Um, you don't necessarily have to read the whole thing. Or like the gods, you know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to write the gods up kind of like a newspaper article where like you can get the gist in like the first few sentences and then you can keep reading if you want more information. Um, so you could go through that really quickly and get kind of the, the thumbnail sketch or, you know, the elevator pitch of each of the gods and kind of know who they are. And then you could pick the one that you're most interested in to read more. But I'm, I'm really hoping to keep it short. Like if you look at the skag, you know, the information they have on the gods, like that's way more than I want. I mean, it's good stuff to have, but most players aren't going to read all that. 
So I'd rather keep it short and concise and, and really have stuff there to help them role play a follower of that God. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to run this campaign. And um, I'd say I'm, I'm over half done with the player's guide. It's at like 27, 28 pages right now, I think. Um, so of course that's in Word. So it's probably like if I laid it out in InDesign, it'd probably be quite a few less pages than that. But um, got to finish that up and make some some more random encounter tables for different areas where the PCs will be adventuring and come up with some more adventure locations that they can check out and come up with a map. And that's basically it. At that point, I'll be I'll be ready, I think. <laughs> And then uh, we throw this all at the players and we, we see what happens, see what they, what they think of it and what they make of it. All right. Let's see. I think that is just about it. And you know what? I haven't seen anything in the chat. I think I have the wrong chat room open. That could be my problem. Let's see. I'll feel really bad if there's a bunch of chat that I wasn't. Oh, uh, just one from Justin. Um, so Justin says, are you doing any live campaigns? Just started watching Tyranny of Dragons and can't find second half of the campaign anywhere. Um, yeah, if you mean by the second half of the campaign, if you mean the second book, uh, we started playing, we stopped playing that somewhere in the beginning of uh, Rise of Tiamat, Tiamat, the second book of that. Um, the campaign I'm running right now is the Hidden Shrine of Tom Walken, Tales from the Awning Portal, um, is the one I'm running, running right now. But that is um, that is just probably just going to be that one adventure. I'm not, I'm definitely not doing all of them. I might do one or two more of them. It really depends how long it takes me to get um, this, this East marches thing up and running. Cause, cause once that's going, like I'm going to want to do that and not run published stuff anymore. So hopefully I can have East marches ready to go by the time I finish hidden shrine. And if so, then we'll start, we'll start the new campaign then. Um, if not, if I need more time, I might take a break from running just so I can bang out the rest of the East Marches stuff, or we might go on to White Plume Mountain. We'll have to see. So I want to thank everyone for watching uh, the live stream. And if you're new to Starwalker Studios, if you're new to the channel, uh, check out the Game Master's Journey um, uh, playlist. <laughs> Uh, those are episodes of Game Master's Journey, my podcast. If you want to subscribe to it in your podcast app, you can do that over at StarWalkerStudios.com. There are all kinds of links uh, in the description of this video to take you where you need to go. Um, if you're looking for actual play, again, right now I'm currently running uh, The Hidden Shrine of Tom Walken. You can find those videos here. And uh, again, I want to say thank you to all of the patrons who, uh, through your support, I've can now do this live stream every month and do extra Game Master's Journey every month. And that's that's awesome. So if you want more Game Master's Journey, if you want more live streams, if you want more actual plays, uh, becoming a patron is the best way to see that happen someday. So thank you, patrons. Thank you, everyone. And I will see you next month. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.